Harvest, as you're taking your seat, please uh, take your Bibles and actually turn to the New Testament. I'd like for us to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using one of the Bibles in the, behind the seats there, uh, page 996, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're working our way through the book of Judges, and I'd like for us just to take a look at two passages in the New Testament to kind of set our thinking and set our minds, I think, on a right course here for the kind of text that we're entering into today. And we're 2 Timothy 3, and I'd like to read verses 16 and 17. It says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, it doesn't stop there, that the man of God, that the woman of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So uh, as I read that and I understand it, I understand that all Scripture is God-breathed, all Scripture is God-sourced, that it is useful, that it's useful for teaching, it's useful for reproof, it's useful for correction, it's useful for training in righteousness. I've heard it said, uh, in other words, God's word tells us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right uh, in that. It equips us thoroughly and fully to love the Lord, and so I assume that includes all scripture. Agreed? All Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it includes all of Scripture. Um, and that would include easy and hard text, correct? Uh, that would include New Testament, Old Testament, true? True. Okay, before we go to Judges 19, turn to the left to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, we're on page 218. Um, and uh, let me read verse 4, chapter 15. Verse 4, God's Word says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. I love that passage. Love that passage. Uh, turn to Judges 19 now. Judges 19. Uh, so what we're doing is we turn to Judges 19, knowing that whatever it is talking about in this chapter, it is God's truth, it is God's breathe, God's source, God is the ultimate author of it, uh, um, it is his truth, it's designed to equip us, uh, yeah, it was information writing from a long time ago, but it's uh, written to equip us today, to equip us thoroughly with God-breathed instruction, and that by our enduring in it, our study of it, it is going to encourage us, and it is going to give us hope. Uh, it is going to help us. So if we're going to get really excited about texts like Exodus 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea, or like if we get excited about texts like 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath, or in Daniel, Daniel and the lions, then we, it's easy to get excited and encouraged about those passages, right? I mean, we love those and uh, uh, love that. Uh, if we go to uh, harder texts like Genesis 3 and the fall of man and sin, or if we go to Genesis 6 and 7 and the flood with Noah, or Job chapter 1 or Malachi 1 and 2, and we go knowing that it is God-breathed, it is useful, it is profitable, it's going to give us encouragement and hope even though it's hard. 
So whatever Judges 19 brings, we know that it is ultimately there to provide us help and ultimately uh, encouragement and hope that we would be more and more equipped to understand God, to understand life with the Lord. And uh, we're there, right? You with me? Okay. Now, I want to refresh our memory. We're in the book of Judges. We're in this time period of some 350 years of time that's taking place. It's when God's people are not living the way God uh, desires his people to be living, and they are not living who they say they are. It is just a pure blown out mess in this whole period of time. Chapters 3 through 16 is telling us about 13 judges, giving us a picture of the whole of what's going on, and it goes from worse to worser. Uh, in all that reality. Last Sunday, we started in the final five chapters of the book. We're almost done um, with it. Uh, and I say it because it's just dark stuff. Uh, we started in the final five chapters. Uh, it's the picture of the rest of God's people besides the governors, besides these deliverers, besides these judges that have been put in place. And uh, um, in it, last Sunday, we found that there's corruption in the home, there's corruption in the spiritual leadership, and we found there's corruption of, of one of the tribes. It, it's top to bottom, through and throughout. Um, I, I would suggest you think of these last five chapters of the book of Judges as the exclamation point on everything that's come before. It's like you go all the way through chapter 16, and it's like it's worse, and it just gets worser. And then these last five chapters are that exclamation point to go, yeah, you think it's bad. It's like way bad, really bad. It's the exclamation point there. In fact, speaking of these final five chapters, uh, uh, Moiter says, uh, we have it on the screen, it says, the events chronicled in Judges chapters 17 through 21, these final five chapters, are without exception the sort of thing on which one never hears sermons preached except at Harvest Bible Chapel in the U.S. Even among Bible-loving people, their hearts whisper softly and tenderly that there is no need to wrestle with such scripture when we can be meditating on Philippians, right? I'm going to leave that quote up because I think it nails it. Okay, we are in the final five chapters, and it's not Philippians, okay? Uh, frankly, I'd rather be in Philippians. I would rather be in Philippians, but we go knowing it's all of God's word, it's useful to equip us, to help us, and to encourage and give us hope. Um, I'm just going to say this, uh, Pastor Nate made mention at my request earlier, but uh, we're about to enter probably one of two or three of the most dark chapters in all of Scripture. Sorry, first service, but I am loaded today. Um, it's bothersome. It's frankly disgusting. And the sad part about it, it's not coming from people who aren't to be called God's people. It's coming from God's people. And that's the point. This is dark, but it leads to encouragement and hope. A lot of dark. We will finish with hope. Okay? So hang in with me. 
stay in with me. Two comments before we dive in. One, it's really interesting, in uh, chapter 19 through the end of the book is kind of one account. We're breaking it because you can see the chapters are really long. But the names are basically anonymous throughout here. Uh, the names are basically anonymous. Why is that? Well, a couple reasons. Anonym, uh, anonymity allows characters to represent a wider group. In other words, the Levite represents Levites. The old man represents all outsiders, okay? Uh, just kind of get that idea. Also, the anonymity just reflects the dehumanization of an individual. It's in a time where it's so dark that names are removed for the most part. Name gives identity. Name gives humanity. Name gives community. You are someone to people when you have a name. And names carry an emotional and a relational tie. For the most part, there's no names. It's representing the whole, it's dehumanized, if you will. Also, I'm going to note here that there's just no didactic, like here's the lesson to be learned summary by the narrator, by the human writer here. I'll say that you don't get to a point here, especially in this chapter, where the narrator says like, okay, uh, this is what it's teaching. Instead, what he's doing here, I'm convinced of, is that he's teaching through how he writes. Okay, so how he writes, pay attention to, and I'm going to try and bring some of this to the table here, because there's teaching in the manner in which he says, speaks, and carries information out. I'm telling you, the writing, if you, if you just bypass the subject and you go through and you look at the writing, it's, it, it's brilliant. It's masterful script writing. Because it's going to pull us in, it's going to grab every sense that we have in our being created in the image of God. It's going to move us, it's going to take us, it's going to shock us, and it's even going to sicken us. But uh, he's moving us, I'll say it this way, we are not told that mankind is depraved, but you see it. And you feel it. So with all of that, if you don't know what Judges 19 is, here we go. Opening statement in the chapter, it begins with, in those days when there was no king in Israel. In those days when there was no king of Israel. Now reminder, we've seen this before. In chapter 17, verse 6, it said in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. Then chapter 18, it said in those days there was no king in Israel. Then if, by the way, at the very last verse of the book of Judges, it says there was no, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This is a key, key term that's used here. There was no king in those days. There was no physical Israelite king in those days. You you could see that and understand that kind of in two ways. There was no physical king uh, over Israel to call them out of their depraved sin reality that was going on. There was also no king in Israel to take them there. And by the way, in the Old Testament, it may be more the latter than the prior. Because the kings of the day, if you continue in the Old Testament, they never get out of this not being established to be what God called them to be. They're stuck in this and stuck in this for hundreds of years, for centuries of time, generations of time. And it's like they never get out of this. 
And it's almost more like there's no king in Israel, a physical king. By the way, there's no spiritual king in Israel with what we see going on here. Because as we'll see here, it's God's people living in a time where they're like, we do not want Yahweh telling me what to do and how to live. There was no king in Israel. There was no king in Israel. Here we go. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. Man, that sounds like last Sunday. But this is a different Levite. Uh, he took up, he took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there, some, and was there for some four months. A couple things about this to set up the stage, what's going on. There's a sojourning Levites. Levites were the, to be the spiritual leaders of the day. We talked about that last Sunday. Joshua 14, Joshua 21. God placed the, the tribe of Levi. They didn't have land as their inheritance, but they were to be the spiritual leaders. Let's kind of call them in our context here. They were like the, the leading pastors and the pastors around. They were the ones to be leading the people. God had placed them. Them in 48 cities, Joshua chapter 1, to, to be leading and, and, and directing and guiding. And here's this second Levite that's sojourning. He's wandering. That just was not normal in that day. Listen, God sovereignly placed you somewhere. What are you looking for? Like, are you looking for something better than what God, where God put you? Oh boy, there's a lot we could be talking on that. But that's what's happening here. You are to be back where God puts you to help people to becoming established to be all that God has called them to be. What are you doing as a sojourning Levite? And also we learn he has a concubine. Now does that not sound not right? Now if I came in here and I said, hey, uh, Karen's up in Chicago right now with our new grandson Max. Bam! Got that in somewhere. And, uh, and he's really, really cute. And um, all that. And she's up there, and I'd be like, you know, I'd like to introduce to you today my concubine. <clears throat> One, she wouldn't be happy. Two, I think you would have issues, right? I mean, just the sound of this is not right. A concubine. A concubine in the day was a second-class wife. It was a second-class wife. It was a woman who performed marriage duties without any legal rights as a full wife. What's with that? And dude, you're a spiritual leader. Really what's with that and what's going on? It could imply that he had another wife. But the text doesn't talk about it. We don't see it anywhere. So I, I can't go there. I, I don't want to imagine what I don't know and what the text doesn't tell us. And so it's not important with that. So we have a wandering Le Levite with this second class concubine. And there's already a bad feeling about this dude. Let's keep reading. Verse 3, then her husband arose, the Levite, and went after her. What? Now, let me set this. I noted in there that uh, it's uh, unfaithful to him. Uh, that could be translated from the Hebrew to mean she prostituted herself. More likely because of what's going on, it also has a meaning in some of her, like my Bible has down at the bottom, it could mean she became angry with him. Most likely, I think, they had a really bad argument. I, I don't think she's prostituting herself. I think there's just something going on. They've had this 
colossal uh, fight uh, in it, and, and, and she's gone, and, and she's been gone there for some four months. After four months, then her husband arose. Four months. Now, listen, husbands and wives, we've all had fights with our spouse, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you had, because you all have, right? And Karen and I have as well. And there's times where you're like, you know, I'm not talking for a day just because I'm a jerk. Or it's like, I'm going to be mad for a couple days. Or I'm going to be like really mad for a week. Or like, I'm going to be mad for like a couple weeks. And then you start going, I mean, come on, man. How long are you going to be that mad? How about four months? Four months. I'm telling you, this piece of information, undergirding it, we don't know what it means. It's saying something. It took him four months to go seek his wife, his concubine. Uh, then, he, uh, then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her. That's really cool. And to bring her back, restoration. Love that. That's cool. He had with him his servant and a couple donkeys. We're getting context here. And, and he just, bam, he's there. And, and she brought him into her father's house. That's interesting. Um, she actually seems like this is, this is good. And, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And, and his father-in-law, uh, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him for three days. How many days? That's a long time. So he's at the in-laws uh, for three days. They ate and drank and spent the night there. And, and on the fourth day, uh, they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, no, 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 strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread. After that, you may go. That's cool. You know, being a, a, a dad of married children, I could get that. No, just hang around a little bit longer. Hang around. Verse 6, so the two of them sat and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, be, be pleased to spend the night and let your heart be merry. What a sweet guy. And when the man rose up to go, his, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he rose early in the morning to depart, and the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait till the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant arose to depart his father, and the girl's father said to him, Behold, uh, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. <laughs> Listen, uh, there, there's, there's a really sweet side of this. Did you just see the hospitality in this and the, the, the father-in-law with them and I don't know all the details of what's going on, but, but then there's the other side of it where, you know, you, you, you go to your parents and you go to the in-laws and it's like, really, love you? Gotta go. <laughs> you know, I mean, please, please, like, please let me go. Um, I'm not going any further with that. Uh, behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here, let your heart be merry. And tomorrow, tomorrow, yeah, tomorrow you shall rise early and in the morning for your journey and go home. Verse 10. Uh, but the man, the Levite, would not spend the night. He rose up and departed. And bam, he, he, he's gone, okay? He leaves the in-laws. And, and he arrived opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem, uh, Ephraim. It's in the heart of uh, this is kind of in the very center of the 12 tribes. Again, you can go back to your Bible and look at that. I'm not using a map today. And, 
and in Jerusalem. And he had with him a, a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him, and, and also his servant. Again, the author is setting text here because they've made a movement. Verse 11, when they were near Jebus, near Jerusalem, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and, and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, uh, we will not turn aside to the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or, or possibly Ramah. Verse 14, So they passed on, went their way, and the sun went down on them near Gibeah, uh, which belongs to Benjamin. Uh, all these are pieces of information to help us understand some things. I'll clarify here in just a second. Verse 15, And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at where? Gibeah, Gibeah. And he went in and sat in the open square of the city, for no one took him into his house to spend the night. Let's review this. So uh, after four months, the, the, the Levite goes and uh, goes to speak kindly to his concubine, his second-class wife, and uh, to bring her back. And he has a servant, a couple donkeys, and he arrives, and she brings uh, her, her husband into her father's house, and the father sees him, comes to meet him with joy, and, and makes him stay. They stayed for three days. On day four, they arise to leave, and her father says, no, 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 eat, then, then go. And, and then it's, then stay the night, stay the night. So they, they got up to go. Her father pressed him. They stayed. Day five, verse eight. They rise early. Father stays uh, till the day cools. Please do that. Stay. Verse nine, they get up to leave. Father says, it's evening, uh, now spend the night, lodge here, be merry, uh, go tomorrow. Um, sweet hospitality, a little bit of interesting awkwardness, the family dynamics of things. Um, so I'm going to make a note. In all the conversation between the father-in-law and, and uh, the Levite, the concubine, the, the, the servant, and the donkeys, all of it is directed the father to the son. Uh, just you know, note that. It's a, it's a very male-directed conversation that's going on here. Um, verse 10, they leave. Start of a new journey. They uh, get near Jerusalem, and the servant says, no, not stay here. Why? Um, well, I don't know. I don't know. Um, Levite replies, we're going to go to Gibeah or Ramah. Um, why does the author even include this conversation? Who cares? I mean, honestly, there's, let's get to the meat of the story. Who cares what little dinky place you're going to spend the night in? It's hugely critical. Because the servant is saying, let's go over and stay with the Jebusites who are Canaanites. They're not Israelites, they're Canaanites. And in this whole conversation then, the, the master says, no, 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 let's go, I'm not going to stay with Canaanites, and there's some valid reason in the day. By the way, if you think it's bad here with God's people, it was really like really bad, gladiator bad with Canaanites. And, and so he's like, no, 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 we, we can't do that, we can't spend the night, and in many ways you could go, this is really sweet of him, he's trying to care for all of them by staying somewhere that would be safe, because he's from Ephraim, he's, he's a Levite. Uh, he would have added safety and protection by staying with Israelites. And so he says, let's stay there. They go into the, the town square, and, and they find this little band uh, sitting down in the open square of the city. Who cares? No one takes them in. Who cares? Well, it's really important. A reader at the time reading this 
would be utterly shocked, stunned, and bothered by what was just read. Why do I say that? Because at the time, the cultural, infer- the cultural uh, setting was in the ancient Near East was this is how you would do it to find somewhere to lodge. We would say get a hotel, you know, as you're traveling somewhere. But what they would do is they would come into a town. You've got to understand this is a walled town. This isn't just an endless open territory. It's a walled city. They would come into the walled city in the evening. They would go into the center of the town. It's an Israelite town. Israelites in the center of the town or any traveler coming through they'd go into the center of the town and then then people would see that that, that, oh you're not from here and they would invite you to come stay with them now that sounds a little bit foreign to us because we're incredibly independent and we like don't want to know anyone or need anyone But in that day, it was a huge, glorious event for you to be able to have someone passing through to stay over with you. It was an honor to do that. And people's eyes were attuned to watching anybody in the town square. Again, this is not a huge city sprawling all over. Anybody in the town square that's not from there. And they're like, oh, we'd love to take you. By the way, like having gone over to Romania or to St. Vincent and some of these places where they don't have a whole lot. And you go there and they lay it all on the table for you. I mean, I remember being in Moldova. And the entire dinner was like this dinner feast, and it all came out of their backyard. And it was like a massive sacrifice, not only for the chickens, but for the family. And uh, they adored doing it. And to say, can we pay you, would be an absolute insult. And people loved doing this, so the fact that they came in, and the fact that he's a Levite, it's like a traveling pastor came in and you're like, forget you. No one noticed. This was a huge issue. And a person reading this would be shocked and horrified and you need to know that. And it's kind of a bit sad that we don't understand that. By the way, if, if I was going to take this really practical and horizontal, I would love it if our lobby was that. I would love it if our lobby was the kind of place where God's people who reside here have their eyes open all the time on someone new. I don't know who's new. I don't either. But if you don't know them, they're new to you. But that's not the point of the text. pastoral passion there. Let's keep reading. Verse 16, and behold, by the way, throughout this, the word behold is there. Behold is kind of like an exclamation point. And behold, they're there in the town square. No one's showing up. They have nowhere to spend. The old man was an old man coming from his work in the field at evening. The old man is from the hill country of Ephraim. Oh, that's where the Levite's from. And he was sojourning in Gibeah. In other words, he was a temporary resident in Gibeah. Oh, so were they. And the men of the place were Benjamites. They were Israelites. And he lifted up his eyes, and he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And he didn't even have a visitor or a welcome person tag on. Sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll drop that. And the old man said... 
where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, the Levite did, we're passing from Bethlehem in Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. And right at this moment, the old man's going, I'm from that area. From which I come, the Levite comes. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord. Now, what could this mean here, house of the Lord? It can mean two things. Your Bible may note that. It can mean here that that term in the Hebrew could be saying, I'm going to my home, which he does end up doing. It also could mean in this that I'm going to the tabernacle, because the tabernacle is in Ephraim, in Shiloh, and it could mean that, and there's some potential that he's kind of talking it a little bit better than it is. Like, we're headed to the tabernacle. I can't, I don't know on that because of the language of it, but, but I'm going to the house of the Lord. It could be I'm going home. And then he says, but, but no one has taken me into his house. You kind of even get a sense that he's a little shocked by it. I, I thought if we would come to Gibeah or, or Ramah that we would come into the open center of the city just like this is what everybody does. And I thought someone would come and say, hey, let's stay over and we can say, but, 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 but no one's done that here. Verse 19, and we even have straw and feed for our donkeys. We, we don't even need anything from anyone else. And we have bread and wine for me and your, uh, your female servant and, and, and the young man with your servants. Uh, um, uh, there is no lack of it. We don't need it, just a place to stay. Verse 20, and the old man said, peace be to you. That's cool. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house, gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. I love this guy. Actually, right at this moment, I'm loving everybody, except for the people in Gibeah. Um, you've kind of forgotten about what's taken place and how they've gotten there. You're so in the moment of what's happening. This is why this is brilliant writing. It's moving us along, giving us pieces of information with it that's so fitting for the moment of, of what's happening here. I mean, here's this couple restored. They're headed home. Uh, and then all of a sudden, this sojourning man shows up from same place that the Levites from, from the territory. And he says, peace be with you. I'll care for all your wants. And, and he even gives them a bed and cares for his, their donkeys and washes their feet. And they eat and they drink. I mean, just so cool. But there's an interesting comment made. The old man, he says, only do not spend the night in the square. Now, I think we would normally pass by it because I know the rest of the story. There, there's something about that where, is he just saying, no, no, don't, 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 don't sleep here because that's probably what they would have ended up doing. Don't, don't just sleep here. You know, come on, I've got a place for it. It, it could mean that, but, but there's, there's a hint in this, the way the story moves. The, 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 the writer puts it in there. It's like, well, why not spend the night in the square? Is, is something more going on than what he's saying there? Hmm. Hmm. Verse 22. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows. That doesn't sound good. Literal sons of Belial. Worthless fellows surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may have sex with him. And the man, master of the house, went out to them and said, no, my brothers, no, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. 
love this guy. I mean, all they're having a delightful evening together, and then bam, bam, bam. Hey, old man, sojourner, bring out the man. It's singular. It's not feminine. It's not any kind of neutrality. It's clearly bring out the man. And, and uh, the man that you brought into your house, that one, bring him out. We want to have sex with him. Wait, 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 wait. They were seen in the town square. They were picked out as someone from not around the area. There were some people that saw this small band, this small caravan of individuals. They see this little group in the open town square. They were seen. And on top of that, they're then tracked out to this old man's house. And on top of that, a plot is being planned during this tracking them, stalking them out to this old man's house. And it's not to take the concubine, it's not to take the servant, it's to take the pastor. It's to take the Levite. Friends, these are Israelites. These are by the term God's people. These are not people that have nothing to do with Yahweh. These are people who umbrella reign are God's people. These are what those men are. Israelites who are seeking to carry out homosexual rape on a Levite. And this old man comes out, no, don't do that. Don't do this vile thing. I like this guy. Verse 24. He's still speaking. Behold. Here are my virgin daughter. And his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. Excuse me, but are you freaking kidding me? This was the sweet guy. This is the sweet guy that came along to love on this little traveling caravan to help them when no one else was. And he's even making proper statements. No, 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 no. Don't do this vile thing. No, no, no. Here said, take my virgin daughter. That is sick. Agreed? That is not only sick, that is depraved, that is disgusting, that is like beyond comprehension, and I'm sorry, but I'm just in a place where I have a daughter. What are you doing, dude? And then on top of that, he adds, take his concubine. What did he ask him? This was the one sweet guy. And he's talking as we read it here like he has no problem with this. And these are God's people. I'm going to say it again. These are God's people. 
violate them. Do with them what seems good to you. Look at this. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine. By the way, get the men and the man. The Levite. It's not the old man seized. I understand this. That So the man seized his concubine, the, the one that he owned. The one that was his. So, 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 so I, I think it's... The Levite seizes his concubines and makes her go out to them. What? Well, after all, she's a second-class wife. I don't care if she's a second-class wife. What are you doing? Grabbing anybody that is part of your family, even if you treat her like garbage. What are you doing? Oh, the humanity. And no one is named. Because there is no humanity going on. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, I hate this text. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house. It's been a rough week, even with the new grandchild. I'm trying. The writer is writing this so vividly. That it's like, please just get off topic. And he keeps it there. Why? He's keeping us there. She is sexually used and abused all night long, all night long till the morning. And then till the morning, we find her there at the door of the man's house. She couldn't even get inside. And doggone it, the men are in there asleep. What the hell is going on in Israel? What is going on with God's people? God's people. Not people outside, God's people. It's gotten this bad, this bad. And it gets worse. And her master rose up in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. You've got to understand in the Hebrew of this. It's like he was getting up to go. 
and he steps out, oh, what are you doing here? The behold is like the, he was shocked. He thought she's just gone. And there she is, hand on the threshold of the door. And by the way, he rose up in the morning means he slept. Verse 28. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. Do you think, does everybody just not want to bring this guy in the middle and like, let's just pummel him to death? Now, Doug, you're really sick. No, that's righteous. <laughs> it's just... And her master rose up in the morning, opened the doors of the house to go, and behold, there was this concubine lying on the floor of the house after everything that happened to her last night. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose and went away to his home. Did this guy ever have any love for her? Doesn't seem like it. Verse 29. And they got home. He entered his house. He took a knife, taking hold of his concubine, and he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. By the way, this is what they would do when they would catch an enemy and they would send them out. Canaanites would do this. They would send them out to all the surrounding areas and it was a call to war. He's doing what Canaanites do with an enemy. Is doing what Canaanites do with an enemy to his wife. And all who saw it said such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Honestly, I don't even want to talk about the end part of it because I'm just so... How are you feeling right now? You know, there's a part of this that isn't surprising until you realize this is God's people. It's sickening in and of itself because we see some of this stuff happening in our world today. But these are God's people. And there's a tendency to take this text and want to push it outside the doors. And want to have it applied and implied upon what's going on out there. And it's true, it does. And in fact, I want to make note of some things that it does have some implications and applications for. First, one of seven. Degradation. Let's go to the next slide. Degradation of marriage in the home. Boy, you see that there, right? We're seeing that in our day. Degradation of marriage in the home. Somehow it was normal and okay in that home to have a man have a concubine. Degradation of marriage in the home. We also see, we could spend time on talking about degradation of spiritual leadership. And here this Levite, he has a concubine. He's four months before he seeks restoration with his wife. Tosses her out. A worthless man. He's apparently not even bothered. He sleeps all night. He nearly trips over on the way out. 
Spiritual leadership at its worst. The degradation of men, we could talk about that. Men, we should be mortified by this. I'll just be transparent with you right now. I'm not feeling it right now. Are you? Are, are you mortified by this? Men, we should be in the place where we're so disgusted. We want to beat the living snot out of this guy just because that's not how men act. That's not how men treat women. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God created us equally before his eyes, yet uniquely. And there is no better than, there is no muscling over, and if you are a brute to your wife, stop it. That's not what a man does. Ephesians chapter 5, what does a man do? A man gives up himself, betrays himself like Christ walking down the Via Della Rosa. A man gives himself up for his wife, doesn't beat her, doesn't speak like this to her, and certainly doesn't allow her to be raped or cut up. We could talk more on that, but I'm not. <laughs> Degradation of community. God's people are... You know what I'm talking about. Fifth, degradation of sex. Women being viewed as sex objects. Wives as well. Homosexuality. Rape. Pornography. Talk about that. We could talk about degradation of justice. God's people are supposed to live not like Canaanites. They're supposed to live like someone completely different. They're living just like the Canaanites. Seventh, we could just talk about the degradation of culture. Friends, you've got to remember, this is not the talking, the context of this is not talking about our secular culture. The context of this is talking about the culture of God's people. And yet the problem is there's no difference between God's people and the Canaanites in the time. And when God's people think and act and talk and do like the world, they become like the world. And the Lord hates it. And yet we just have this way, like we just have to do things that just make us look like the world because we're not the dorky Christians. You talk about all those, but I'm going to term it this way. Men from the Saturday class, small group leaders from last night. But all these are just the fruit on the tree. There's a bigger problem. There's a bigger issue. There's a more important issue to see, and that is the root issue. See, the fruit tells the story of the root. You know what the root is by what's going on in the fruit of it. And so what are we supposed to learn from and be equipped from thoroughly? Well, the big question in the interpretive reality of this is, how does this passage fit in with the whole of the story of the context of the book of Judges? As I said, these final chapters are the exclamation point on the book of Judges. And ultimately, at the root of it, the book of Judges is about giving us a living picture of every heart at the time. And here's the reality, left unto ourselves... 
left unto doing what is right in our own eyes. Our hearts will take us there. Friends, if you think that you or I are far away from doing any of this, you don't understand biblically the heart. Because the truth of the matter is, you and I, we are only just a couple decisions away from that. I used to have a senior pastor who said, I'm always two decisions away from being fired. And we think there's this grand chasm of separation. Oh, because we've been redeemed in Christ. Oh, redeemed in Christ, but our heart is still this. And we kind of think that this is nothing with, to do with us. These are God's people. This is about the degradation of the heart. That's the root of the issue that's going on here. Degradation. It's a status of something being destroyed. It's a process, but it also has the meaning of a condition of something that's destroyed. That's what I'm talking about. Biblically, it's called the noetic effect of sin. Friends, I am this. I am Judges 19 at the heart of it. And I'm sorry to say this, but so are you. Yeah, but I have Christ. I understand. But at the core of who we are, I am Judges 19, and so are you. This is the reality of our heart. This is the reality of our potential. And that shocked and that sickened feeling that we have in our stomachs over what happened here, that should, same shocked and sickened feeling should be the, 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 the sense that we have about the reality of the bare naked condition of our own heart. Pastor Chris mentioned on Saturday, we have a problem. We're passive about sin. We need to make war with it. And this is the kind of passage that if we think that's them and I have no tie to that, we're missing the point of it. This is what God's people can do, but the fruit on the tree may be crazy over the top uh, like what ours is right at the moment. Oh, I pray to God that it is, but know this, when you get to the root of it, the heart is still the same reality. It's only by God's general given grace that our world is not every day this, a total living hell. Doug, where's the encouragement and the hope in this? I said we would get there. There is no hope in this story. But there is hope in another story. There is hope and encouragement in the story of what God has done for people like this. 
as bad as this is. What Christ has done in the cross is far greater than that. Amen. Thank you, Russ. Amen. Judges 19 reveals who I am and who you are at the root of our heart. It's ugly. It's sickening. But it's true. If you're having a hard time with that, Matthew 5, Jesus said, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery. 1 John 3.15, if you've hated your brother, you've murdered. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short. Friends, I hate to say it, but this is us at the core. But there is another story. That when we see who we are, and we take it there, Oh, there's hope, and there's encouragement, and we can rejoice, and we can have hope, and we can know that we're not doomed, but yet we understand in this that when we come to Christ, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. We're forgiven of our sin, but yet we are still at war with our sin, Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3. And to think that when I come to Christ, that this is all gone. No, no, no. When I come to Christ, now I have hope in that war of my heart. And it's time to go at war with that. And not be pansies. And not be pacifists. And not be excusers in it. But go to war. If you're visiting with us, this is not a normal Sunday. <laughs> I'm sorry, the thing's going on in my head. Luke 18, Jesus says a parable. Don't be like the Pharisee who says, Oh, I thank you, I'm not like those men. Don't be that. Romans chapter 3. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, 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 not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Redeemed. If you are redeemed in Christ, you are redeemed. But that still tells a story at the heart of who we are by nature. And lastly, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 to 30. Jesus has come to me. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I know right now that's me heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart.
Will you read the rest out loud, please? And... The best place we can take Judges 19 is to the cross. Can we have the communion servers get in place, please? Friends, if you're not sure what a relationship with Jesus looks like, if there's not been a time in your life where you've come to receive Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you to ask someone and let's talk because there is hope and encouragement at the foot of the cross. As many as received him, to them he gave right to become children of God. If you've not received Christ as your Savior, there's no hope. So what we do here, though, is we take this time of communion. And for those who know Christ as our Savior, this is a time to come and grab the bread and the cup, bring it back to your seat. And we're going to take it together, remembering the cross and the resurrection and Revelation chapter 1, that Jesus, risen from the dead, overall.